We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Um, I've, got a, I've got a quiz for you today. So I asked the kids what their favorite foods were. Um, it's some interesting, I don't, what was the one? What was, uh, Spetzel? Like I should, I, it's German? I'm German, I should know that. Now I'm going to be in trouble. And mom's going to call me up and say, why don't you know what Spetzel is? Like, okay. Okay. Kids, I know, I know. Kids had some, the kids had some of their requests, right? Um, but what I brought for you this morning was um, um, I read a poll or a study recently of the, the top 10 most popular foods at Thanksgiving, okay? Now, you can probably guess what number one is going to be. Okay, turkey. So I'm going to give you that one. I'm going to give you that one. Um, even though I, I oftentimes in my own home make a very strong case that I don't like turkey, that it's dry and it makes me sleep and I would rather have spiral cut ham from Costco. See, some of you are on my side. So maybe I'm a little outside of the norm, but man, okay. Okay, but number one still is turkey. Um, but here's what I thought we'd do. We maybe go down the list and we'll see if any of these surprise you. So uh, um, this is going from most popular to least popular. So turkey's number one. Number two, mashed potatoes, okay. Yeah, pretty standard, right? Number three, stuffing, okay. Which this one was interesting. I know some of you are like, eh, stuffing's there, but do I eat it? It looks good, but right? Okay, so stuffing. Uh, stuffing's number three. Number four is just bread rolls. You have some kind of, so I, I, and I'm not a, I'm not a nutritionist, but so far, I think, <laughs> I know so far we've got like turkey, which has tryptophan is going to make us sleep. And then we're, we're finishing it up with like starches beyond all measure, I think. Right. So, okay. Okay. So this is why we sleep on Thanksgiving as well. Apparently uh, bread was number four, number five ham. There you go. I'm glad that it uh, finally came in there. Um, but also not healthy. So, uh, number six, we got scalloped potatoes. Yeah, this one was a little bit of a surprise to me, right? So, yeah, some of you wrinkled your nose at scalloped potatoes. Okay, number six, scalloped potatoes. Number seven, sweet potatoes. It's a good one, right? Especially, especially with marshmallows melted over the top. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love it. Uh, let's see. Okay. Number eight, we just got gravy, right? Now, this one was a little bit tricky. I think they probably should connected mashed potatoes and gravy, but I didn't do the poll. I didn't take it. They did it this way. Okay. So we got a couple left. Uh, green beans. Okay. Green bean casserole. Yeah. We had one of the kids that wanted that. And then last one, mac and cheese. Yeah. 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 No devil eggs did not make the top 10. I know uh, you're disappointed. I was a little surprised that mac and cheese made it into the top 10. But um, for those of you that have any little kids, like Almost nothing in one through nine do they really like. And number 10 is what, so you got to throw the, the, you know, you got to give the kids something, right? So mac and cheese. Um, if, if you were wondering, and you weren't wondering this, uh, but I found it very curious, I think it was about number 25 or, or number 26 on the list of most popular foods was sauerkraut. I know. So, <laughs> I know. See, I, I did have German parents, and so sauerkraut was usually at... Thanksgiving for us as well. So I know. I was just happy that like sauerkraut actually made it on the list. Now, I don't know if the list was only out of 25 and it was like number 25, but it made it. So 
I know, yeah, and that was the interesting one. Cranberries did not make the top 10, right? Um, even though they're probably at almost all of yours. And I wasn't kidding, actually, when I said to the kids, if you want an interesting read, like, look up the history of, like, cranberries, and they are remarkably American, and there's probably only about 200 years worth of, like, history where we've cultivated them, made them. Um, fun fact, over 60% of our cranberries are grown in a distant state of Wisconsin. Yes, somebody <laughs> hollered it out. Yes! All fun facts that did not intend to make it into the sermon and now seem to have made it into the sermon. Okay, um, so this is our top 10, right? You might have a few different things that you put on there. Uh, maybe Spetzel, maybe uh, Lefsa, uh, maybe Cranberries, maybe some of those things make it in there. Um, but these are, pretty, these are pretty common. What was that? Pumpkin pie, I know. I don't know if how they worded it was that it was food and not dessert, which pumpkin pie is very close to being an actual food. And, I, and we could make the argument, we could make the argument that sweet potatoes are very close to being a dessert, not a food. So I know. Anyway, um, yeah, that, that didn't make it. But anyway, I would guess most of these are probably going to be maybe in your house or on your plates this coming week, right? So... Um, and, and these are all, these are foods that we love. They bring back memories, bring back um, the reality of, of being with family and friends. So one of these 10 or maybe all 10 of these might be on your plate this coming Thanksgiving. But the truth is you're going to serve up some other things for Thanksgiving and for the holidays as well. And this list is not quite as tasty as this one. Okay. Top 10 most common holiday problems. Because if we're being very honest with ourselves, we can fill our plates with all of that food, but the unspoken reality of the holidays, Thanksgiving and beyond, is that we serve up a whole heaping ton of other things as well, don't we? And that tends to come up during Thanksgiving and Christmas and all the way through. So, top 10 common holiday problems. Number one, anxiety, right? Yeah. What was that? Relatives. Well, we're, we may be getting to that. So um, we may be getting to relatives and I'll, I'll remind you, you're sitting by relatives. So I just, I, I, let's, let's not start these problems this morning in church. So, okay. Uh, so number one, anxiety. Number two, unmet expectations. So Thanksgiving is supposed to look like this. Christmas is supposed to look like this. Um, we build this narrative in our own heads. And when it doesn't reach that, right, um, frustration, right? Number three, loneliness, right? So we talk about family, we talk about friends. But um, for many of us, for some of you, it, this is a remarkably lonely time, right? Um, maybe you are by yourself, right? Maybe you are um, alone for the first time at a holiday without a spouse, right? Loneliness. Uh, number four, whose family to visit? So this is relatives a little bit, like where are we going to go, right? Are we spend all day long uh, on the road? Number five, reliving past hurts, which is a fascinating one. When, do, when does past sin and pain come up? Most commonly during the holidays, right? Number six, money, finances, right? Okay. Number seven, parenting disagreements, right? So, yeah. Yeah, right? Parenting disagreements. Because guess what? Um, you are together with other parents who have kids and not everybody parents the same way, lo and behold, right? So, okay. 
Uh, number eight, pressure about the future. Uh, why in the world we decide to have like really significant future discussions at the holidays, I'm not sure. Possibly because we never slow down enough until the holidays to actually think through these things, right? So pressure about the future. Uh, number nine, embarrassing childhood stories, right? Yeah, it's legitimate. Like every single time you get together, and if it's like me with my family, when I get together, I'm like, I'm a full-grown man. Like I'm a pastor. Like I have responsibilities. And then I get together with my brothers and sister, and I'm just like the middle child again, and little Timmy. It just—it's not good. I'm just—I'm right back to where I am in my birth order past memories, things like that, right? So, okay. Uh, and the last one, this is probably the most significant on the list, um, is having to watch the Detroit Lions play. So, um, so all of these are significant issues during the holidays. Uh, um, but here's the reality, right? <clears throat> um, all of the wonderful things, all the blessings, all the beautiful things that, that come out during the holidays, we have to be honest, um, that there are just as many, if not more, painful things, issues, problems, sin, suffering, that is also on our plates. Today, that's what we want to look at. So how does Jesus help us um, with all of these things, both the highs and the lows? Um, how does he, in a sense, help us set our hearts right as we begin our march through the holiday season? Um, Jesus has a wonderful way of doing that. We're going to do that in our text today. So, uh, you're welcome to follow along with me today if you would like. Uh, this text lays out a little bit different than maybe some of our others. So, um, usually I have one or, uh, two or three different points uh, underneath our theme. Um, today, we are going to have five different contrasts. So, um, you can, if you remember me reading it, um, there's kind of these contrasts going at, on throughout the text. And so, we're going to walk through those. We're going to look at the differences in those um, and then ultimately make, that, make applications for ourselves and, and our Christian living. So, um, so we're going to fill these in as we go along. You're welcome to take notes in your bulletin uh, if you'd if you like to do that. If you'd like to get A pluses on your quizzes, you can fill out notes. So, yeah. So, uh, so let's jump right into our text. We're going to start with uh, verses 36 through set 37. Uh, and this will set our scene just a little bit for uh, when our text is taking place. So we read there. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So um, this, this, this sets the context of what's happening here, right? Um, so primarily, there's two different people that are involved. So a sinful woman from town and Pharisee, we learn a little bit later, his name is Simon, who has invited Jesus over for dinner. Um, it wasn't necessarily Thanksgiving dinner, right? Um, but it, it was dinner. And so um, that's what's taking place. It's kind of this conflict or this contrast um, between the sinful woman and the Pharisee. Now, what's remarkable is it's being done in, uh, to some degree, kind of an intimate situation, right? If you invite somebody to your home, if you have somebody over even for Thanksgiving or for the holidays, um, you are opening yourself up to some degree uh, to them, right? Um, they get to look at your pictures and, and hopefully they don't open the wrong closet door and all your junk falls out or things like that. But when you ask somebody into your home, there is a certain um, um, intimacy and openness that, that you're in, inviting in here, right? Um, now, we don't know exactly the intent of Simon the Pharisee inviting Jesus to his house. 
uh, theologians and, and commentaries will kind of speculate a little bit. Um, I think there could be a multitude of reasons why this Pharisee would invite Jesus over. So Pharisees were the largest religious ruling group at the time um, and in large part looked for opportunities to um, find fault with Christ and kind, kind of cut him off at the knees, eventually, ultimately, crucifixion. So the motivation for Simon the Pharisee inviting Jesus over, we're not 100% sure. Um, was, he, was he actually seeking to learn about Jesus and who he was? Maybe. Doesn't seem super likely. Um, maybe more likely, he was just looking for ammo or ammunition on how to accuse Jesus going forward. Right? Uh, possibly it was just to kind of get on a popularity train. Jesus' popularity had been on the rise, and so maybe Simon thought, um, if I ask Jesus to have dinner with me, it's going to make me look magnanimous and interested in, in this rabbi, this teacher. Right? Um, all kinds of motivations could have been there, I think, for him inviting Jesus over. But you're contrasting Simon the Pharisee um, with a woman. Now, we find out some kind of interesting things about her, right? It says that she lived a sinful life, and so she showed up. Um, the subtext of that a little bit um, is that many commentators will say she lived a sinful life, and guess who knew about it? Her entire town, right? So many commentators will say that maybe she was, she was a prostitute, maybe a harlot, um, and that that was well known within the community. We don't know that 100%. I think it's maybe a pretty good inference to make. But what we do know is, is that she was considered sinful, right? That her lifestyle had placed her in that category and that everyone in town knew exactly who she was, okay? Yeah, she shows up at this dinner, right? Um, these are the contrasts, at least in this context, that we're seeing. But they're coming with vastly different baggage or intent, I think, which kind of brings us to our first contrast, right? We find this sinful woman coming in vulnerability versus Simon the Pharisee, who at best, maybe it was just pretense, right? Maybe out of duty, he was inviting Jesus over. And those are vastly different, aren't they? Right? Both were eating dinner, both were there and present, and yet they were coming with different things. Now, Simon the Pharisee's interest, or, or, or um, um, in a sense, not inviting the woman uh, is also telling, right? She didn't have an invitation to his house because that generally didn't happen. So even our context, two different things they're coming with. Sinful woman, sense of vulnerability, right? Might even call it chance. She was taking a risk, wasn't she? Um, um, on some level, she was, um, she was meal crashing, wasn't she? Right? Versus Simon the Pharisee, who was clearly in charge and had set up the parameters of what was happening. Okay, okay let's go to our next few verses here. We'll read verses 38 through 39. As she stood beside him, as she stood beside him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, 
that she is a sinner. Okay. So now you see these contrasts start to grow just a little bit, don't you? Um, we begin with the woman, right? Um, she comes in vulnerability, and then what do we see from her? Weeping, right? Tears. Do we know exactly why? Not, not exactly. Tears of sorrow, right? Um, tears of repentance, possibly also tears of joy, right? At having found Jesus, maybe at having actually been able to be physically at his feet. But we do know this, it was genuine, right? She was crying, right? She began to wet his feet with her tears. And ultimately, she lets down her hair and anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. Now, all of that is significant. Um, Contextually, we probably got to understand a little bit of what was generally done, and we're going to find that out a little later in our text. Um, But travel was difficult. You wore sandals. Um, It was common courtesy when you would come to someone's house that you would offer them uh, um, um, water and able to wash their feet, um, sometimes oil for their head because travel was hard and dusty and dirty. Um, showers, running water, those kind of things were, were not around. So this, these were the things that you would offer to your guests who had traveled long distances. The woman here wets Jesus' feet with her tears and then literally lets down her hair to wipe them clean. Right? And we actually have a phrase, right? Letting down your hair means you are, um, you, well... In our context, letting down your hair means like you're probably dancing a little more than you should, that kind of thing, right, at a wedding, right? Um, But the truth is, for her and for women back then, to let down your hair was also seen as an offense, right? But it was also a place of incredible vulnerability. So she wets his feet with her tears, and she wipes them dry with her hair, and then anoints his feet with costly perfume that she had brought along. And so this wasn't kind of just a happenstance type thing. She had come there purposefully, looking for Jesus, looking to sit at his feet. And when she got the chance, tears simply flowed, right? The Pharisee, Simon, vastly different, right? Um, He refers to Jesus as this man and references the woman as a sinner, Now, this man maybe doesn't sound all that offensive to us, uh, but contextually it would have been, right? So he doesn't call Jesus Lord. Uh, He doesn't use a sign of respect. Um, He doesn't call him teacher. He doesn't call him rabbi, any of those things. Um, He just says, this man, right? So it it was intentionally that he was giving Jesus no honor, um, no love, no respect in this setting, right? And then in maybe one of the, the, well, Here's what I think people needed to learn when they were around Jesus, that like passive, aggressive thoughts and feelings don't work very good with him because he can read your heart and your mind. (laughs) So I think this Pharisee was like kind of this passive, aggressive thought that went through his head, right? If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she's a sinner. Now, he uses that term a sinner purposefully. Because she would have been in a category uh, that would have been outside of normal Israelite life, right? She would have been in a category that, that most self-respecting Israelites would not associate with her, okay? She was a sinner. There's others that are in that category. Tax collectors, right? Uh, um, we think of prostitutes, um, 
Um, those lepers, those that, that had diseases would have been labeled that, right? So this was this whole category of sinners that you just didn't associate with. Even if on some level you had empathy and you wanted to, you wouldn't do it. And that was in large part due to the Pharisees. Pharisees like Simon who was there on that night. Because if you associated with, if you ate with, if you were touched by or touched someone that was in the category of sinner, it would make you ceremonially unclean and you were barred for temple worship. So you couldn't go celebrate the Passover, right? Or the Sabbath with your family. Um, You would have been labeled ceremonially unclean. So in a sense, um, within Jewish society at that time, and that's exactly what Simon the Pharisees is, is intimating at, that if you are in the presence of and you let someone that is a sinner touch you, their sin is going to rub off on you. Right? And you're not going to be allowed to worship. And you're not going to be allowed to do the things that the Pharisees themselves said are required in order to be right with your God above. And so when he makes this statement in a passive-aggressive way to himself, or so he thought, um, it is just steeped in, in, in subtext that's happening there, right? Jesus calls him on it. And so that brings us to that, that kind of second contrast, right? The woman came with humility. Simon the Pharisee came with arrogance right? Um, That he was above, that he was apart, and that this woman clearly was below, and if Jesus was going to interact with him, maybe he was as well, right? Okay. So vulnerability versus pretense, humility versus arrogance. Next few verses here. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of, them love, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And so Jesus calls him out on his thought, right, that he thought was private. He says, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a parable, right? And um, um, I think it was probably remarkably obvious to the Pharisee as he was listening to this parable, Right? Um, because Jesus says two people. So he's setting up the scene. Um, my guess is that in that context, the Pharisee would have been sitting there, I, this is my guess, I don't know this textually, but that he would have been sitting there going, okay, tell me the story, like rolling his eyes, right? He'd already shown disrespect for Jesus. Um, he'd already shown that he felt uh, in some way that he was above and apart from the sinner, the sinful woman, and Jesus himself, right? And so he says, okay. Fine, tell me the story. Jesus starts it out, two people owed money. And so he's setting up this contrast, isn't he? Saying there's two people in this scenario, right? There's two people at this meal as well, right? Um, Two people owed money, both to a money lender. And this is probably the hinge upon which our entire text and certainly this parable um, hinges on, right? There are two people that both owed. They both had debts. Now, the debts were different, right? Varying sizes, but they both were in debt to the money lender. Presumably, neither of them could pay them back. And so both of them were, in a sense, at the mercy of the money lender. Well, in the context of the parable, and I think the Pharisee would have figured this out pretty quickly, um, who was the money lender? It was God. And even in this context, Jesus was saying, It's me, right? 
In fact, we see the response from uh, the Pharisee. Uh, Jesus says, okay, which one? When the moneylender forgives this debt, which one is going to uh, love more, right? And actually, the Greek word here is agape, which is unconditional love. Which, is, which one is going to be overflowing in love more for having their debt forgiven? Again, Pharisee, all I can imagine is like pharisaical eye rolls, which I think are like bigger than normal eye rolls, like, right? But he, he says, I suppose, right? So he knew exactly what the point of Jesus' parable was. Um, in that instance, Jesus was the money collector, and both were in debt. Both were forgiven. Now, if this sounds maybe slightly familiar to you, Jesus tells parables and does it quite often. Um, but this parable uh, in our portion of Luke chapter 7 here um, kind of gets repeated in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable about two lost sons. Sometimes we call it the parable of the lost son or the wayward son, right? So actually, um, this isn't the first time we've heard this parable from Jesus. And in fact, Jesus is going to circle back around to it and tell something very similar. Now, this one, maybe we don't, we don't hear quite as much, but it's the exact same premise, isn't it? Right? The father's son, uh, the father has a, a youngest son who is wayward, takes his inheritance, runs off, uses it all on wild living, is ultimately in the gutter, in the depths, realizes his need for his father's love and for forgiveness and comes crawling back home. What does the father do? He runs out to him with arms open, um, saying, bring the fattened calf, let's kill it, let's have a feast, let's celebrate. This son of mine that was lost has been found again. But in that story, there are two sons, aren't there? There's the younger son that left, but there's the older son who never left. And his reaction when his brother came back home, his brother whom he probably should have been looking for, right? His reaction when his brother comes back home is anger and is disgust, right? How could you do this? I always did the right things, said the right things, always worked for the family, right? In a sense, you owe me. Father's reaction to his older son, son, uh, um, everything I have has always been yours and I've always loved you. And here's the key, I think, for this parable and for the parable of the two lost sons. The key there is the father in the one and the money lender in this one. And the fact that uh, um, that forgiveness is not based on what we do, on a how good we look, on whether we have followed the right rules or not. It's based solely on the generosity, the mercy, and the love of the father and the money lender in both cases. What was Jesus' point and what is his point for us? We're all at the mercy of our God above, right? We all have debts. We all have debts that our sin has racked up on our behalf. And each of yours and each of mine are slightly different. And yet each and every one of them fracture things and pull apart. We wonder why out of all the wonderful foods we're going to eat at the holidays, it was not a surprise to you that there was also a top ten of not great things. Those issues, those sins, that brokenness, that pain and that suffering wouldn't be present at your holiday celebrations if you and I weren't present at our holiday celebrations. Because the truth is, none of us deserve 
in a sense, to sit down with our Lord and Savior. All of us are dinner crashers with sin heavy upon our shoulders. Our debts may look different. Our brokenness may seem slightly different than the person next to us. And yet each and every one of us are at the mercy of our Father, our God above, and ultimately Jesus Christ. That is ultimately what is revealed in Simon the Pharisee and his motivation, right? That is what this woman and Simon uh, um, demonstrated in their actions and ultimately in their feelings. Two different views of love. One was unconditional and one was conditional. The woman understood her need for unconditional love and her tears confirmed that she had it in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. That she had not been good enough, not done things well enough to, to deserve anything from her God above. And yet, mercy is what she had, right? Pharisee, completely conditional. And in fact, in that moment, he was taking tally, right? I'll love God if God does certain things for me. And, he, and you ought to. Because I've done the right things and I've walked the right way. And look how magnanimous I am that I even invited Jesus of Nazareth over to my house. Bonus points, right? One viewed God above in a conditional way. One viewed God above in an unconditional way. The word used for love here consistently that Jesus uses is agape, which is unconditional love. But when you view God in those two different ways, it results in vastly different views of our God above. If you view your God above conditionally, then at best, um, um, he's a vending machine, and at worst, um, he is a taskmaster that you have to check off to-dos over and over and over again. If you view God unconditionally and understand the unconditional love Jesus has for us on the cross, our motivation changes, doesn't it? We weep. We throw ourselves at his feet and we respond with joy knowing that we have been forgiven. Ultimately, Christ is the hinge point between these two different things, right? The woman understood the unconditional love over God above. Pharisee was still holding on to this idea of a conditional love, okay? Let's continue in our text. Verse 44 and on. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but the woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus marks out this contrast. And really all he's saying is, Simon, if you want to take a look at the visible signs around us and what we're doing, I'll give you a list. You did not do this. You did not do that. You did not act in this way. And in fact, I know your heart and I knew the comments you made in your own head. All Jesus was doing was saying that from the heart, ultimately come our actions and our thoughts, and our words. Jesus highlights that the Pharisees' actions, words, and thoughts were far different than the woman's. 
The woman's came from understanding unconditional love. Pharisee still clung to his conditions that he brought along with him. Right? It resulted great love from the woman and little love from the Pharisee. Jesus' point was that from understanding that unconditional love, we are then able to love unconditionally. And I think on some level we understand that as well. Give you the context of maybe if, if you've got kids, if you've got family, right? If you consistently only love your kids in a conditional way, what do you think that will do to their psyche over time? How do, you, how do you think that they will view you in the long term? Better shape up. Better step in line. Do this. Don't do that. And if you're lucky, I'll throw some love your way. But if not, you're dead to me. You contrast that with unconditional love. Right? Not that we don't have rules and, and um, loving guidelines within our families or with the people that we love, right? But that we love you anyway, right? That even in the midst of mistakes and sin, I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love like our God, our Father, has loved me. I'm going to be standing waiting for you to forgive, to wrap our arms around, and to assure you of my love. Those are vastly different ways to see the world and vastly different ways for us to see the relationships around us. As you go into the holiday season, you're going to have opportunities to show unconditional love versus conditional love. You have opportunities to do all the things that are on this list. Be vulnerable, show humility, unconditional love, and great love, right? But here's the last one, last few verses. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Out of this entire text, uh, this is the only time where the contrast is not there any longer. And I think the silence is deafening. To the woman... He reassures her of her forgiveness and he says, go in peace. To Simon the Pharisee, actually the story ends there, doesn't it? Right? We don't hear anything, do we? Jesus' point was to shake him, was to cause him to understand what was happening. But the silence, in a sense, is deafening. Right? This holiday season, these are the things that you get to serve up on your plates in your homes, and in your relationships. Right? Now, if this is just a checklist for you to do, some of you are really studious, and you can maybe, maybe do all of them, but then, as soon as then you'll get a little proud about it, and you'll have to like mark out the humility one. Right? <laughs> right? Because on some level, I think that's almost how our human capacity looks at it. Say, okay, okay, pastor just told me to do these things over the holidays. Here's the important part of our text today and, and your entire holiday season and the reason that we are believers. It's not because God says, do these things and then I'll love you. It's because these things have been done for you. 
that list is what Christ has done on your behalf perfectly. And so as you enter the holiday season, understand that this is how Christ has lived on your account. Not because we checked off lists, not because we were such good boys and girls, not conditionally, but unconditionally. He laid down his life, he, he sacrificed his life, shed his blood so that you would know your sins are forgiven. And knowing that, that empowers, that motivates, that might bring some tears to your eye, it absolutely brings joy and it gives you the possibility to serve those things up on your plates and in your relationships this holiday season. Motivated and assured by Christ, we're able to bring these things to our families and into our homes. And I pray the Lord does that for you. One last story. Some of you have maybe seen this one. Uh, in 2016, there was a woman named Wanda Dench. Um, this has become kind of a famous story. Um, she sent a text message to what she thought was her son's phone number, uh, telling him exactly what time Thanksgiving was at. So she said, Thanksgiving dinner's at my house, 3 p.m., uh, hope to see you there. Someone replied, who is this? No idea, right? Um, Your grandma. The reply, grandma, can I have a picture? Which, grandma's... Don't send pictures, but okay. She said, of, of who? He said, you, LOL. So she sends him a picture. She was at work, right? Says, okay, this is your grandma. Maybe she thought that her son was messing with, him, with her a little bit. Um, says, yes, here I'm at work. The person she was texting also sent back a picture. <laughs> he said, uh, you're not my grandma, right? Can I still get a plate though, right? <laughs> This man, 17 years old, uh, was named Jamal Hinton, is named Jamal Hinton, um, jokingly says, well, can I still come over for Thanksgiving? And her response, of course you can. That's what grandmas do. We feed everyone, right? So that was 2016. This is 2018. <laughs> They've been celebrating Thanksgiving together for the last eight years, right? A happenstance, a mistake that has brought them together, um, an opportunity to give thanks and a re kind of renewed friendship, right? Um, it's a beautiful story. Word has it, Netflix is going to make a movie out of it too, um, of course, right? Uh, but a beautiful story of, of, um, of an invitation that was maybe not as expected as it might have been, that ultimately God used for their good, for their blessing, right? I pray this Thanksgiving and holiday season, make a point of inviting Christ to dinner. Make a point of inviting Christ into your relationships, into your lives, into the thoughts you think, the words you use, the actions you take. And we do all of that because we know who our Lord and Savior is and out of thanksgiving for what he has done. Amen.